ready Burgundy Bibles in front of you, you'll find it on page 983. Reading from one of the historical accounts of the life of Jesus, but it's God's holy word. Let's bow our heads together and pray before we read it together. Lord, we thank you that no scripture came about by man's own design or interpretation. It never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from you as they were carried along by your Holy Spirit. So we are encouraged to know that we would, it would be good for us to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark, a dark place. So Lord, help us be attentive and help us listen by your Spirit and by your grace to understand in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 16, reading from verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Amen. This is God's word. Well, if you've ever visited any of the royal residences in London, you will no doubt have seen the Queen's guards clad in their distinctive red jackets, black trousers, white belt, bearskin hats. You know what I'm talking about, yeah? Well, contrary to what any tourist would tell you, they are not there for show. They're not there to be made fun of. They're actually on guard duty. They're doing a job. (laughs) They're protecting the royal family. One poor tourist found this out very seriously last week when he thought it would be a hoot to march alongside one of the guards as he paced his 15 paces to the left and 15 paces to the right of his post. Uh, The guard was okay with that. You could see in the video the guard saw him. He he clocked him. Is he a threat? Doesn't look like a threat. Someone with a Nikon camera is not necessarily a threat. Not always. But he wasn't a threat until the tourist then put his hand on the guard's shoulder as he marched. The same shoulder that the guard was using to carry his rifle. 
Yes. Well, all of a sudden, you see in the video, the guard, in, a, in the flip of a switch, just pulled his rifle with his big bayonet on the end from his shoulder, held it down at the, at the tourist and shouted, Get back from the Queen's Guard! He didn't need to do that because by the time he'd already got his gun down, the tourist was fleeing like a pansy. <laughs> he was off. He was off. And the guard just went into defense modes. He pointed his gun at the tourist and that was it. Problem solved. These guys need to take their guard, their guard duties seriously. And the constancy of their guards seriously. If, if ever there was a need to remember the seriousness of their duties and the constancy of their guard in this, it's the story of a man called Michael Fagan. Michael Fagan is surely the only man except Prince Philip to ever have a wee chat with the Queen in her own bedroom. In July 1982, this unemployed labourer sneaked past the Queen's guards, climbed up a drainpipe and into Queen Elizabeth's private apartment while she was asleep. Exactly. And she woke up to find this man just sitting on her recliner. That's a little bit scary. She spent 10 minutes, though, calmly talking to him, to her credit. And she got the opportunity to call attention to this intruder after he asked for a cigarette so she could call for the footman. An investigation into the breach revealed that the Queen's Guard soldier had lazily left his post five minutes before his replacement had arrived, leaving the route to the Queen unprotected. In our text today, why am I telling you this? You're wondering this, aren't you? What on earth is the connection with this and bread and yeast? Well, Jesus is calling for the same level of diligence in guarding against theological intruders who threaten the church family, our church family. Because in our text today, what we have is, is, is a bunch of guys who come forward called Pharisees and Sadducees who are opposing Jesus, opposing the gospel, and sowing alternative seeds. You basically have two scenes. Let me lay it out for you at the start, just so we understand where we're going. You've got two scenes. In scene one, in verses one to four, the religious leaders of the day, they attempt to trap Jesus. He doesn't fall for it. He sees right through it. In fact, he turns the tables on them to show us that the guys who think they're good, the Pharisees and Sadducees, are in fact evil. Then in scene 2, in verses 5 to 12, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, watch out for guys like that. Be on your guard against guys like that. They might look all holy and good. Appearances, though, can be deceiving. That's why he warns them. Twice in verses 6 and 11, Jesus says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Be on your guard. That really is the big theme in this passage. And we know that because Matthew adds this editorial comment in verse 12. It's one of those, ah, editorials. It helps you understand what it's about. To help the reader understand, Jesus is warning us against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not yeast used in bread. Teaching. The doctrine. The teaching of the Pharisees. Their teaching is dangerous. And what we know of Pharisees and Sadducees, they have... Their teaching has the potential to suck people like us into a gospel-denying error and into a belief system that makes you think that you're going to heaven, but in fact you're going to hell. That's sinister. 
Now, the problem that I have here is that this text doesn't really elaborate on what their teaching is. Matthew maybe just assumes that the reader knows because, well, he's writing to a Jewish audience perhaps, so they would know Pharisees and Sadducees, or else they've read enough of Matthew's gospel so far to understand what's going on when he refers to Pharisees and Sadducees. He's already addressed them as hypocrites, for example, who think they're clean but are unclean. But we have enough information in the New Testament to help us summarize this teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees and therefore know how to guard against it. Now, you might say, why do I need to guard against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? I actually don't know any. There's no, none, no, none of them live in my streets. Let's wrap this up and go home. No. They might not be around anymore, but their teaching is, and it's pervasive, and it's dangerous, and we need to guard against it. So here's what we're going to do. If you're taking notes, there are going to be two main points. One, don't drop your guards. Learn to recognize theological intrusion. Number one, don't drop your guard. Learn to recognize theological intrusion. Number two, be on your guard. Grow in your understanding of God. Grow in your understanding of God. So number one, don't drop your guard. Learn how to recognize theological intrusion, false doctrine. Look with me at verse one. Here we have a theological intruders coming to pick a fight with Jesus. Now it might surprise some that they are the religious leaders, the pastors and the theologians of the day. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven, a sign out of heaven. They're looking for a big deal miracle, an Elijah on Carmel kind of miracle. Now, let me tell you something about the Pharisees and Sadducees, just in case you don't know much about them. They were not best pals. Uh, They were not even friends on Facebook. They hated each other that much. The Pharisees thought the Sadducees were liberals. They were. The the Sadducees thought the Pharisees were uptight and super strict. They were. They, They were both right about each other. The Pharisees, you see, were legalists. Legalists. Ask a Pharisee what his favorite color is, and he'd say, simple, black and white. They believed in a literal interpretation of the law. Ask a Pharisee what speed you should do in a 70, he'd say, well, 60. I mean, so determined were they to keep God's law, they actually wrote a book of, or assimilated this book of instructions to how to make sure you never break it. It's called the Talmud. The Pharisees taught lots and lots of different things that would make your heresy alarm go off. Do you not have one? We should have one. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll, give you, I'll give you two things that would make, should make your heresy alarm go off. One, they had elevated their traditions to the level of Scripture. They claimed that these other traditions, their words written down, were as equally binding on people as God's word, and they made sure people knew it. So your heresy alarm should be going off right now. Nothing equates to the inerrant word of God. Nothing. The second problem with Pharisees was their belief that their good works made them right with God. They thought they could justify themselves by keeping rules. Your your heresy alarm should be breaking at that. No one is righteous, not even one. That is impossible for any person to do. You see, legalists who think that they can make themselves right with God on their own steam ultimately have a major problem with Jesus. This is what we see in the text. Because Jesus is one who dispenses forgiveness, not according to a person's merit, but according to his grace and his mercy. Uh, Jesus teaches that you're only made right with God through faith in him. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. But the way the Pharisees are living out their religion suggests that they have no need for Jesus. And soon they'll actually think they're doing God a favor by having Jesus killed. That's wicked. That's just wrong. But that's what legalism does. What about the the Sadducees? If the Pharisees were legalists, the Sadducees were liberals. Ask a Sadducee what his favorite color is and he would say, ah, tell me yours. Ha, me too. They enjoyed an established office, you see, and they they cozied up with the Romans to keep it. And they they didn't like anyone or anything that, that rocked that proverbial boat. They preferred to do whatever it took to maintain their status and position, mainly because they were getting extremely rich through it. These were the guys who were running the temple treasury, turning the house of God into a den of robbers. Now, ask a Sadducee what speed you should be doing in a 70. He'd probably say, it depends who's watching, right? Because this was the big faux pas of the Sadducees. They were, they were liberal in their views of, of the scripture. They, they would even argue for degrees of inspiration. You know, certain words, they were really of God, but maybe not other words. You know, for example, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, that's scripture. Psalms, yeah, less so. They certainly didn't think anyone needed to obey all of it. And they rejected some teachings that were otherwise core to the faith. They had no chapters on the afterlife, on angels, or the resurrection in their theology textbooks. So why did they have a problem with Jesus? Well, because every time he said, it is written, he reestablished the solidity of the word of God and highlighted the error of those who play fast and loose with it. And he kept talking about a resurrection. And if that happened, they, their temple business, their social lives, well, they were gone, their history. So I hope that gives you a little bit of a sketch about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what's important to note about these guys is is the legalism of the Pharisees and the liberalism of the Sadducees is diametrically opposed to the teaching of Jesus. That's why Jesus warned his disciples to be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, it's wrong. It's going to get you into... If you live that way and follow by those principles, you are going to be in deep, deep trouble. But what about us? What relevance does this warning have for us? Because even Jesus himself knew that within 40 odd years the temple would be destroyed. The sects of the Pharisees and Sadducees would effectively die out. But Jesus gave this warning to the church that he bought and established with his own blood to show us that legalism and liberalism, trying to make yourself right with God by your own efforts and playing fast and loose with his instruction, his words, would be two of the great plagues that threatened the lifeblood of the church throughout the ages again and again and again until he comes. So yes, the names of Pharisees and Sadducees would disappear, but there would always be people like the Pharisees who would try and add to the word of God and make a burden for the backs of people like us. And there would always be people like the Sadducees who would always say, yeah, you don't really need to worry about that. That was for back then, that that interpretation. You don't need to worry about that today. Hey, we've moved on. Legalism is alive and well today, and we need to know how to guard against it. How do you know if you're legalistic? You ever asked that question? 
I suppose one test would be to ask yourself, how does God, if you're a believer, if you could ask, I wonder, what does God think of me today? How does God feel about me? If the answer is anything other than, well, he loves me and accepts me in his son, then we might just be falling into the trap of thinking that God's attitude towards us is determined by our performance rather than his love. In other words, you might be thinking like a Pharisee, as though God's favor is earned uh, rather than freely given. Maybe you're thinking along legalistic lines if you value church traditions more highly than you do biblical principles. Or if you elevate some law or rule or principle that's really, really important to you, if you ramp it up in its intensity or you make it something that the Bible does not require. Or maybe you tend to think of yourself as better than others because by the things that you value, you've elevated yourself and devalued others. That's error. It's a wrong way of thinking. It's to, we have to be on our guard against it. It intrudes into our hearts, intrudes into our church families and creates a lot of problems. Same with liberalism. It lives in those who happily take a pair of scissors and cut out bits of the Bible they don't really like. It lives in those who say the Bible had its place back in the day, but things have progressed. We're more enlightened. Culture's changed. So should we. Move with the times. It lives in those who tell us that we ought not to condemn anyone's views just in case we give the impression that we don't love them. And it lives in those who form a selective picture of God as a God of love only and not a God who is holy and who punishes wrongdoing. We are to be on our guard against this kind of teaching because it doesn't just exist. Jesus teaches us in this passage that it spreads. It spreads. That's what he teaches when he uses this one word illustration to describe the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeast. Yeast. Now according to that fine expert in bread making, Paul Hollywood, Yeast is the driving force behind a well-risen bread. It's what turns that sticky lump of dense dough into a light and fluffy bloomer. I'll not go into the science of it, but what we do need to know is that you only need a tiny amount. The tiniest amount of yeast has a way of working its way through a huge batch of dough. And that's what false teaching does. That's what Jesus is teaching us. It insidiously saturates a church, families of churches. Even it seems in this passage where you get the impression that this kind of teaching has saturated a generation, a nation. I mean, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees demonstrates that. Their teaching has evidently worked its way through the nation of Israel that when their Messiah came, he was effectively unrecognizable to them. So they crucified him. The teaching then of the Pharisees and Sadducees remains a threat to local church life today and Jesus warns us about its pervasiveness. He says it's wrong, it's pervasive, it's rooted in evil. And that's what he says in verses 2 to 4 because Jesus here unmasks the false teachers and exposes their wickedness. Look with me, you see verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees asked Jesus to put on a show. Show us a sign from heaven. And by asking for the sign, they completely discredit every miracle that Jesus has already performed. We know that earlier in Matthew, they've actually credited his miracles to the devil. 
But he quotes this little saying to them. Look with me, verse 2. When evening comes, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. So he quotes this little proverb. It's effectively, red sky at night, shepherd's delight, red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. It's meteorology for dummies. Now, but he, his response to them is, is good, isn't it? He says, isn't it funny that you amateur weathermen can read the sky well enough to know whether or not you should take your umbrella with you in the morning, but when it comes to your apparent area of expertise, theology, the Bible, the things of God, you cannot read the signs of the times. You're blind. Now, the signs of the times, those are simply the time of God's visitation. Because the Son of God is among them. Many times in the Old Testament, this visitation was foretold. Remember earlier in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist asked Jesus a question, are you the one we've been waiting for? Jesus says, the blind see, the lame walk. In other words, all the telltale signs of the Messiah, the servant, the son of God's visitation is here. And, and Jesus says, all the telltale signs accompany me. But the Pharisees and Sadducees cannot discern them. They're blinded by the God of this age. They've suppressed the truth by their own wickedness, become futile in their thinking, and darkened in their understanding. You do not want to listen to people like that. You do not want to follow people like that. You don't want to take notes in their sermons. You need to stick your fingers in your ears, shout la 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 at the top of your voice, and run out all at the same time. But because of their, Jesus says, not only are they spiritually illiterate, they cannot even read the signs. There's no point in doing a sign for you. You can't even read it. You're spiritually illiterate. He also says they're spiritually unfaithful. Spiritually unfaithful. This is what lies behind their inability to read the signs. They have another love. They have this kind of external thing where they say, oh yeah, we love God. They stand on the street corners, they pray, oh, you're great, so am I. These guys aren't. I thank you, I'm not like that person. Oh, here I go with my offering, everyone. Cast. But these guys have another love. A wicked and adulterous generation, Jesus says, verse 4 looks for a miraculous sign. That's his diagnosis of them. They cannot read the signs of the times because they have actually turned away from God. All their, the religious things that they do are just for show. It's externalism. It's just show. They cannot read the signs of the Messiah's visitation because they love their law more than they love God or they love themselves more than they love God. Now, because of their spiritual illiteracy and unfaithfulness, Jesus denies them. Jesus denies them this sign that they demand. But he does promise them one sign, doesn't he? The sign of Jonah. And Jesus has already mentioned this in chapter 12 already. He said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. So the sign of Jonah points to two things. One, the resurrection of Jesus after three days in the tomb, which according to Romans 1 tells us that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So if that didn't prove Christ genuine to the Sadducees, uh, to the Pharisees, nothing would. 
And the Gentile converts of Nineveh, this is the second thing, would rise up at the judgment and judge this generation who had rejected Jesus. Well, that wouldn't go down, with the Pharise- go down well with the Pharisees and Sadducees. In short, this resurrection would be a sign that would determine their agreement with God or otherwise. It would disclose that they are truly false. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I don't want you to be confused by this at all. There are lots of different people who try to teach lots of different things and claim it to be Christianity. But the only way you can truly know and understand what Christianity is, is by reading God's word and having someone who, f- who will faithfully teach it to you and not make excuses for it, to treat it and solely as the authoritative, sufficient, inerrant word of God and declare it to you like that. And only when they hold that out to you will they be able to say to you, listen, a man is not justified by doing good works but through faith in Jesus Christ. It is by grace that you are saved. It's God's favor shown to you. It's not by doing any good works so that no one can boast. All that we are called to do is we're not called to scrub ourselves up and get ourselves ready for, 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 for Jesus. We are to come to him as we are, covered in sin, to seek his forgiveness on account of the promise that he has made that all who trust in him shall receive forgiveness in his name and eternal life in his name by trusting his blood shed on the cross. And I would encourage you to do that, to turn from your sin, your wickedness, and turn to him in faith, believing that he died for you, for your sin. And you'll receive eternal life. Well, what happens in our text with these Pharisees and Sadducees? It's quite a thing, actually, isn't it? Jesus then left them and went away. No more signs except the sign of Jonah. It's quite a thing to have the Son of God turn his back on you because of unbelief. Now, just quickly, the second point. Jesus left, went away. He and his disciples get into a boat and cross the lake. And it's quite clear from verses 5, uh, from verse 5 and 6, that this episode with the Pharisees and Sadducees seems to have had a little bit of an effect on Jesus, but not much of an impression on his followers. All they seem to be worried about is food. Someone's forgotten to take bread again. And uh, that's, this is part of Jesus' concern. And this is the second point where I'm trying to highlight for us to be on our guard, to grow in our understanding of God, so that we are, so that we are aware of these intruders and dangers, these false teachings, and be able to stand against them, guard against them. And I think what Jesus is teaching us here is that we should, as his followers, be ready to move beyond mundane concerns to matters of eternal significance. Because what you have in verse 5 is Matthew telling us that the disciples are out in the lake, they've forgotten to take bread, they're, they're face-palming again. They're like, oh no, who forgot the bread? How could we forget the bread? We had seven basketfuls of the stuff not too long ago. But Jesus isn't thinking about bread. He's thinking about the Pharisees. His interaction with them left him with concerns for his followers. He's worried about them in a sense. That's why he warns them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when he mentions yeast, comically, they think he's pointing out their forgetfulness with the bread. They discussed it among themselves. It's because we didn't bring any bread. 
Well, no, as verse 8 highlights, you, you little faith ones. Jesus said, why are you talking about bread? Surely you've not forgotten how many people I've fed on two occasions. Think about the baskets. Jesus is encouraging them in this whole section, think, think. He doesn't actually instruct them with anything apart from be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. And these questions here between verses 7 and 11, he's getting them to think. Be on your guard, you little faith ones. What you need to be concerned about is not whether you have physical bread, but whether you're being influenced by the theological intrusion, the teaching of these Pharisees. And by his questioning of them, saying, do you still not understand? Don't you remember? He's saying, I expect you to be moving beyond the concerns of a youthful faith and start growing up. I wonder what are the things that dominate our thinking in a general sense. When things are quiet, what does our mind go to? Maybe there are things that cause us concerns. Jesus would have us see that, the, that many of the things that we think about are actually mundane considering uh, compared to these kingdom matters of great importance. I mean, Jesus himself has called us not to worry, for the, the Lord knows exactly what we need. Instead, we have to seek first his kingdom, knowing that all these things will be added as well. But our, the encouragement of Christ in this section is to guard against false teaching and its intrusion. One of the things that will really help us would be to, to concentrate and think, to move beyond the mundane concerns to matters of eternal significance. So how much time do we reflect on our status before God? The forgiveness that Christ has won for us and the extent he went to purchase it. The demands that he places on our life. What does a Christian life actually look like? What are the things that we should love? How should we spend our time? How should we spend our money? And to think on things like that. The second thing he does in his questioning of the disciples is to encourage them to move beyond their little faith to a deeper understanding of the truth. Jesus seems to be so concerned here for his disciples that he highlights where their problem lies, a year of little faith. Interestingly, he doesn't condemn them as wicked and adulterous like he does the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's encouraging them and nurturing their faith. That's why he addresses them in this way. They have a lack of understanding. Verse 9 says, do you not understand? And again, to guard against this False teaching, he wants them to think, to use their minds. Reflect on the meaning of the miracles. You're supposed to look at the life of Jesus, the things that he has done, the things that he has said, and understand something about who he is and the implications that it has for our life. To reflect on the meaning of his words and what he has done and to think through how they should be applied. We see that in the fact that when he's finished questioning them, what does Jesus do? He actually just repeats the warning. He doesn't provide the interpretation. Verse 6, he says, Be careful, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then, the second part of verse 11, he repeats it. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's not the one who tells us it's the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's Matthew who gives us that in the next again verse. He wants them to think. Now, we, we should expect to be fed. We are a church. We, don't want to, we, don't want, we want to be feeding the flock well as elders. We want to be providing good food from God's word. 
Lord willing, faithfully taught. We want to provide, not slim fast, but Christmas dinner, stuff that's going to be really good for you. But we also need to feed ourselves. We need to think for ourselves. And we can be so rushed. We can be so pharisaical in, in our Bible reading plans. In order to tick off the plan, that's all that we're concerned about. But we'd be better slowing down and taking time to use the minds that God has given us, his word, to meditate on it. Like the man in Psalm 1, to know the blessedness of meditating on it again and again and again. Tumbling it around in our heads and our hearts. Asking the right questions. What does this mean? What, what does that mean in relation to that? And what am I to understand? What am I specifically to do in relation to this? And this is the very instruction that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy. As he instructs him, he says, th- he doesn't tell him everything. He says, think over these things. Think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in these things. Paul says to him, come on, get those those synapses firing. Think. Move beyond little faith to a deeper understanding of the truth. Move beyond mundane concerns to matters of eternal significance. And be on your guard. Grow in your understanding of God. Sin and false teaching is utterly pervasive. It's insidious. It's like poison. It works its way in. It's dangerous, really dangerous for our church family. And it's not something we should take lightly. So don't, don't drop your guard. Don't play fast and loose. Don't think for a second we're made right with God by doing works of the law. Do not think for a second that we can tear chunks out of the Bible And expect to live in a way that pleases him. We must hold fast to the gospel of God. So that we can enjoy it. So that we can trust him. Grow in our love for him. And so that we can pass it on. To make disciples of all nations. And pass on this doctrine. Once for all entrusted to the saints. This body of doctrine. As Jude tells us. Pass it on in its pure form to the next generation that they may believe and guard it and pass it on themselves. We need to be a faithful church that handles his words. So be on your guard. Let's pray together.